Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. We're back with another episode of The Short Stacks, our shorter conversations with authors about their process and their books. Today, I'm joined by Isaac Butler, who is the co-author with Dan Kois of The World Only Spins Forward, The Oral History of Angels in America, which is our book club pick for April 10th. As you know, The Stacks is a completely free show, and if you want to help be a part of making the show happen every week, I would encourage you to check out Joining the Effort on Patreon. That's a website where you contribute to the work we're doing on the show for as little as a dollar a month. Patreon allows for us to launch new content like these short stacks and other fun things. And one of my favorite things about Patreon is that you earn perks for your generosity. My personal favorite perk would be our virtual book club where we meet up to discuss the Stacks book club picks through video chat. It's a great way to connect with other awesome readers in this community. If you're interested in being part of the Stacks Pack, go to patreon.com slash the Stacks. If you prefer one-time contributions, check out paypal.me slash the Stacks Pod. Please do me a huge favor by rating and reviewing this show wherever you're listening. The word is building around the Stacks, and the more ratings and reviews we get, the more people we can reach. So if you would take a moment wherever you're listening, especially on Apple Podcasts, and write a short review. Okay. Our guest today is Isaac Butler, who is the co-author of The World Only Spins Forward. He is also a theater director, journalist, and the host of an amazing podcast called Lend Me Your Ears. Now, it's time for you to meet him. Let's do the short stacks. All right. Hi, everybody. Today, we are here with our guest, writer, director, and podcast host, Isaac Butler. He is the co-author of The World Only Spins Forward, which is an oral history of angels in America. Isaac, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Tracy. I'm very excited to have you. Uh, My listeners know this about me, that I'm a huge theater nerd. I went to theater school, so your book is like right up my alley, (laughs) like my whole jam. Which school did you go to? I went to NYU, so reading the book, it was really exciting. Were you a experimental theater wing kid or like? A... I did all sorts. So I started at Strasburg, then I yep. did classical, and then uh-huh. I did ETW. Oh. Yeah. So I bounced around a little bit. Yeah. Um, so yeah. But let's talk about you. Sure. <laughs> all right. So in a 30 seconds or less, just tell us a little bit about your book. Ooh, 30 seconds or less. Okay. Let me see if I can do this. <laughs> the World Only Spins Forward is a comprehensive history of angels in America 
um, told through the lives of more than 250 people who worked on the show, made the show, had their lives changed by the show, uh, have seen the show, you know, so it's this sort of kaleidoscopic look at this one work of art and through that work of art a look at the era in which it was created. That's amazing. That's right on. Where did you get the idea for the book? My co-author Dan Kois uh, was the one who originally thought it up. He was at the time the culture editor for Slate.com. He is now an editor of other things at Slate. Um, and he had pitched in their cover story meeting um, this idea that, you know, like the we were coming up on these big anniversaries of very of various early productions in Angels in America's history, including its premiere at the Eureka, and it would be great to do a piece on the history of the show. Um, and he, I think had gotten as far as booking, but not completing his first interview with Tony Kushner, the okay. author of Angels in America, when he realized that this was a really huge project and he could not do it on his own. And so he wrote me an email. I had written for Slate many times, and he was my editor at that point at Slate. And so he wrote me an email and said, hey, I have this idea for this funky project. Give me a call. Let's talk about it. And then um, when he was in New York, we went out for lunch because all good ideas should be hatched over dumplings. Perfect. He was. He said, you know, <laughs> I want to do this as, as Angels in America, you know, important to you. And I was like, are you kidding? It changed my life. Um, and so very quickly, uh, we decided it would be an oral history. I don't know which of us came up with that idea first, but it was sort of like, oh, it should probably be an oral history. Yeah, let's do that. And then we started, um, the very complicated logistical process of, of interviewing everyone. Um, very early on in our interviews, Dan had an interview with Kathy Chalfont who played, um, Hannah in Angels in many of its early productions. And I had an interview with Ella McLaughlin who played the angel in many of its early productions. And in both of those interviews, Kathy and Ellen said to us, I don't think you realize this yet, but this project is not going to be an article. It's, it's going to be a book. Mm. And, um, after I had that interview with Ellen, I called Dan up. I was like, Hey, Ellen McLaughlin just said this funny thing about how we should really do a book. And Dan said, Oh, that's funny. Kathy Chalfont said the same thing to me. And, um, as we were to discover through reporting the history of Angels in America, when Ellen and Kathy tell you to do something, they mm -hmm. are almost always right. <laughs> uh, so uh, we knew that it was going to be an article first, but we always had in the back of our mind that it was also going to be a book, which was very helpful when it came to edit the article because the original draft of that article was 40,000 words long. <laughs> oh um, so for your listeners who don't know, like a normal piece on slate is 1500 words long, That's right? Like so like a full book. <laughs> yeah. 40,000 words long is about as long as like a 33 and a third book. If you read one of those, okay. it's a lot, right? Um, we turned that in, but we turned that in with the understanding that we were then going to cut it to shreds. And so we cut it to about 15,000 words. And the entire time we were just like, it'll be in the book. It'll be in the book. It'll be right. in the book. But we didn't have a book deal or anything at that point. This was just this sort of thing we told ourselves to be comfortable cutting this stuff. And so then when the original article ran and was a hit, we said, okay, now let's actually turn it into a book. And so that's what we did. That's amazing. So here's what I want to know about Inner, since you have a theater background, but you sure. were a writer first, right? Is that where no, you started? Other way around. Other way around. Other way around. Yeah. But you went to, you got your MFA in writing. I got my MFA in writing, but my BA is in theater from Vassar College. Oh, all right. 
so obviously then you loved angels because you can't be you can't get a BFA anywhere and not love angels, right? Like it's like mandatory. <laughs> yeah, I actually saw angels. I saw the original Broadway production when I was in high school. Oh my gosh, um, amazing. Yeah. At that point I was a child actor in DC and (laughs) through being a child actor in DC, I had gotten to know gay people and come to understand the AIDS crisis. I had friends who had AIDS, you know, I had friends, you know, I had friends who were gay. They were all older because I was, you know, 12 when I was first starting out as an actor, but I, I sort of came to understand what those things were. So my understanding of what theater was and what politics was kind of happened at the same time and heavily involved the movement for gay liberation and the, you know, the, the movement to fight the AIDS crisis. So a couple years later, when Angels was on Broadway, uh, my parents and I were in New York and they had gotten me tickets to see both parts of it over the course of two days. And uh, it just absolutely, you know, changed me and changed my life and changed my idea of what theater could be, what politics could be, what ambition could mean artistically, what great writing was. I mean, it really, it really changed everything. So yeah, I was obsessed with the play. That's so interesting. So when you sat down to start interviewing people, was there anyone that stuck out to you as like, I'm having a total fangirl moment. Like, I can't believe I'm sitting across from blank. Yeah. I mean, I should say having worked in theater in New York for a while and stuff, it's not like I, I didn't know any famous people. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Uh, There's a difference between interviewing a famous person actually, or, or working with a famous person and interviewing someone who, regardless of whether they're famous or not, are part of your personal pantheon are important to evolution. Um, I tried to tamp that down as, as much as I could, you know, and to, and to play it cool in the weird, in weird way. It's like, I I live in a neighborhood in New York that has a lot of celebrities. (laughs) And so you just living here, it's like a a neighborhood in Brooklyn. They seem to like to move to. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I have some practice of like being in a coffee shop and not giving away that I recognize who the person was. And I guess I brought that to the interviews, um, for the, you know, for the most part, um, the first time I was going to interview Tony Kushner, I was incredibly nervous. I got there 45 minutes in advance. You know, Dan and I ran over the questions together. I, uh, you know, read a bunch of stuff. You know, I did sort of all of this prep. Um, and I got to his office so early that I just kind of hung out across the street from the building where it is. And then he got there a little bit early too, cause it's his office. And he was like, are, are you Isaac? Are you here for me? And I was like, yes. I was like, oh, we'll just come downstairs. Um, and you know, that was a pretty early interview that I interviewed Tony and he was actually like incredibly personable and funny and charming and approachable and human. I mean, even though he has a galaxy sized brain, right. Right. Um, and, and talks incredibly fast and all, all those things you've heard about Tony, um, his intellect is imposing, but his personality is not, he's an incredibly kind person when you interview him, you know? And so once I got over that, the rest of them were, were pretty easy. There were definitely times where like, I can't believe I'm going to interview Joe Mantello today, or, you know, I can't believe I'm going to go to meet Nathan Lane for tea in a hotel in London and ask him about playing Roy Cohn, you know, or, or what, but, um, but for the most part, everyone was really approachable. You know, they all wanted to talk about, this thing that was one of the most important things that had ever happened to them. You know, there was no one we talked to who was kind of like, oh yeah. 
Angels, I, I kind of remember that. That was a gig <laughs> I had. You know, it was something that was really important to all of those people. And and when you talk to someone about something they really care about, they, they become more human over the course of that conversation. Totally. I mean, as someone, I studied acting, obviously, so hearing from people and that I admire and that I look up to and that I, that I knew of in the theater and hearing them gush over this play or this line or this moment or how to act this one little thing was so – you could feel their passion for the work in totally. throughout the book. Like I was calling all my friends from college being like, oh my god, you have to read this. It's like – it's going to feel like being in college again. Like it's like <laughs> thinking about the art in a way that we don't think about the art anymore. Like – you know, because once you get out of college, you don't think about anything really in the same way. In that, like, naive, like, isn't this the greatest? And so the book really felt like that for me. Like, I was, like, texting everyone. <laughs> That's great. Well, you know, I mean, the other thing is that the the book is very much about young dreamers. You sure. know, uh, dreamers not in the sense of the immigration sense of the Dream Act, but of the, you know, people, young, idealistic theater makers. I mean, when you, I, I was very moved in doing the reporting on the Eureka Theater in San Francisco who commissioned Angels in America mm-hmm. and premiered it. I mean, I found the story of the Eureka incredibly moving. Um, these sort of young, idealistic, lefty, mostly Marxist or communist actors and directors and writers who had, you know, banded together. They weren't trying to get famous or anything like that. You know, they were trying to make art that they thought could change the world. And I just found it incredibly moving. Um, and through interviewing them, you also see the price of right. living that kind of life after college, right? The price right. of living that into your 30s. Um, uh is is not low. You know, I have an immense admiration for the people of the Eureka. Um, and and it was just amazing to watch them talk like that, you know, and yeah. to watch them, listen to them tell those stories of that time in their life. Um, right. The other thing that was helpful for us, I think, both in terms of the famous people and, you know, everything else is for a lot of the people we were speaking to, not everyone, but for a lot of the people we were speaking to, the events of this book had happened 20 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. And so they had a certain amount of distance on it. Um, It was still very important to them. We, there was lots of crying in our interviews. Sometimes I cried too, you know, Mm -hmm. but it, it was also distant enough that they could have some objectivity on it. You know, I was surprised by how many people told very funny stories at their own expense over the course of telling of, of reporting the book. Uh, a couple that come to mind are, you know, if you've read the book, Marsha Gay Harden's conversation about the wig, mm. uh, 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 Tony has many of them over the course of the book. David Marshall grants one about being sort of half in the closet while playing Joe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, there's, there's, there's a lot of them within the book where, you know, uh, actors have a certain sense of, of humor, a certain sense of distance. Joe Mantello said to me when I interviewed him, you know, I, I sort of don't feel like I have anything to hide because I almost feel like it was a completely different person. Mm, that's so interesting. Okay. So tell me this, how many times were you interviewing people and kind of how were you like walking into the room? Were you just sitting down and being like, tell me this, or did you guys come in with specific questions? Like I want to ask every person who played Harper about the flight to San Francisco or like how structured or not were you being with, with it? Well, the vast majority of our interviews were done over the phone or Skype. 
Um, There were some that were done in person. There were a couple that were done over email. But for the most part, they were done over phone or Skype, Um, which is actually a very useful little craft tip for anyone who wants to make an oral history. It's actually some there's something better about them not being in the room with you because they don't have hand gestures or facial expressions to provide Mm. meaning. And so people use their words in a different way because on some subconscious level, they know that they can't use their hand gestures and facial expressions to color what they were talking about. There was actually one person who shall remain nameless who I interviewed, uh, at one point it was in person. It was in a theater lobby. You know, we were talking about his experience and, um, the entire interview made perfect sense to me at the time. And then I sent it to Dan to read because it was for a chapter that he was working on. And he was like, I have no effing clue what any of this means or what this person is saying, um, you know? And so I had to sort of carefully edit, not invent anything, but carefully edit within that transcript to make it clear, you know, what the meaning of this, you know, was, because this was an actor who was very used to using his whole body, his, I believe you would call it entire instrument, Mm -hmm. uh, to, to be understood. And what I had instead was just his voice and then just, just the transcript of his voice. Um, so most of it was done over the phone. We always had questions written down in advance. Um, for the, those of you who have not read the book, there are chapters interspersed throughout the book where as many people as we could get our hands on who played each of the characters talk about that character, right? So you have an inter, uh, uh, you mentioned Harper. So there's a chapter that's about just Harper. It's almost always just Harper's who are interviewing in that chapter and there's specific scenes that we talk about. Mm-hmm. That was a very regimented series of questions. Some okay. of those were just done email, right? It would just be like, here's the questions. You know, if the person had limited availability or you would call them, but you know, everyone we interviewed about Harper got those same batch of questions on top of whatever else. We, uh, what, what you need to do, what I discovered you need to do in those interviews is you have those set of questions, but you can't just focus on that, right? If the person is giving you something or wants to talk about something, you have to go down that path with them. You have to go, you know, through those digressions because there's often really, really interesting stuff in there. But I definitely, you know, for each person had a list of questions worked out that generally went in chronological order. Kushner was a little bit of a different situation because we interviewed him several times and it was always after a big gap when we had researched without him. So we were often going back to him to be like, here's all the things we have learned. Do you remember this? You know, what was this like? What was that? you know, et cetera. Um, and then the other thing that was complicated with, with Tony, and this is something that's, you know, very famous about him is that you never know once Tony starts talking, what's going to happen. (laughs) His mind works so fast and he knows so much and it was, so it could go anywhere. Um, to give one example, we, interviewed Tony live on stage at the 90 seconds Street Y, And we wanted to talk to him about this anecdote we had read in, uh, an old article about the opening night on Broadway, we, uh, the, the original production. And we wanted to talk to him about that, but the open, the article mentioned Tony's uncle who was at that opening night. And it turns out the uncle was very eccentric and had a colorful life. And all Tony really wanted to talk about was his uncle. I listened to that. <laughs> right? So, so that's it. But then to give another example, when I, I wrote this profile of Nathan Lane for New York Magazine and I interviewed Tony for that 
profile and I had a list of 12 questions written out and I asked the first one and Tony spoke for 30 minutes and <laughs> answered all 11 other ones without my bringing them up. Wow. That's I mean, I had some follow-up questions sure. there, right? But, yeah. but like, it was really this like punctuated, amazing disquisition on Roy Cohn and Nathan Lane and Marianne Elliott and the casting process and what it's like to do the play. You know, it was everything you could have possibly imagined was in that 30 minutes. And of course, that conversation started with him saying to me, I can't imagine what else new I have to tell you about Angels in America. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and of course there was more. And then it turns out there was thousands of words more, you know? So that was a particular thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other interviews were, were very much, we had our questions we were interested in. Sometimes we would work those out together. But by the time we were like really jamming on the book, we, Dan and I trusted our Vulcan mind meld enough to just kind of let each other go forth. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, well, that's what I'm kind of curious about. How does that work? Like, 
to be a co-author on something that is other people's words that you're kind of like crafting into a bigger story arc how how did you guys like come to the table like how did what was your the two of your process once you actually got to writing the book yeah, that's a really good question, and a, a one that I could talk about at great for hours. Great. So I'm feel sure. Free, feel free to <laughs> e- edit the crap out of this, or just interrupt me when it's boring. Okay. Um, so, uh, um, uh, but more seriously, the process of the two of us working together involved an enormous amount of hard work because the book was hard work. Mm-hmm. The actual our collaboration was incredibly easy and joyful. Um, uh, we were almost never in conflict in any serious way, right? right. We keep having this running joke about like, when are we going to have our big fight and falling out? <laughs> um, and I think the fact that it was not our words made that easier, much easier. Dan has a theater background as well. He studied theater in college and he used to work in theater in his 20s. And one of the things that you may remember this from being in, at, uh, in theater school, one of the things that theater teaches you is to, to some extent, sublimate your individual egos and desires to the greater good of the thing that you are creating. hundred percent. Yeah. And I think Dan and I both slipped into that mode pretty automatically. There's a thing that we say in theater all the time that I think sounds pretentious and ridiculous if you're not familiar with it, but you will refer to the work that you are creating as its own thing that has its own desires. You know, you'll Mm -hmm. be like, so what it wants to be is blah, 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 blah. And that sounds a bit like BS. But at its heart, what that really is, is an act of humility before the work that you're creating. And I think it was very clear that the book we wanted to write had, to some extent, its own desires and its own integrity and its own needs. And our job was to listen for those and to deliver those. The, what that looked like concretely We started with the list of productions that were important to Tony's understanding of the play, which makes up one of the several afterwards of the published script. Mm -hmm. Um, We just started with those. And we, that was our first timeline, right? And we tried to contact every single person whose name was on those pages from there. We learned about all sorts of other stuff, all sorts of other productions and things like that that began to become more important or less important or, you know, whatever. And we started to flesh that out. We communicated constantly through shared documents on Google. There was a master timeline that I created. One column was a timeline of the AIDS crisis. One column was a timeline of the development of the play. And one column was the timeline of Tony's life. And that kind of is in the book. It's in the book to some extent. Yeah, a in version of that yeah. is in the book in each act, right? Uh, oh, and then another one was world events, right? right. With the world events that are in there too. Um, we created a giant master, you know, checklist of who we were interviewing and what the status was of each of those interviews. We put all of the interviews into these Google Docs, and once the Google Doc would get so full that you couldn't scroll <laughs> because it would jam up, we would start a new one. Um, you know, so that was the kind of stuff we did. And we emailed each other. Dan and I are both of the weird pocket generation towards the end of Gen X where we just email each other constantly. So we emailed constantly. Then when it came time to actually gather these interviews into chapters, we had a, a top level structural conversation working out what would be in each chapter first. 
And then we would start writing and then we would realize that wouldn't work, you know, and then we would go back and forth. Um, each one of us, like for a given chapter, one of us was tasked with drafting the chapter, mm-hmm. then would send it to the other one to do an edit. And then we would send it back to do an edit to the original writer and then back again. Each of those chapters would be put uh, as the chunks got larger and larger. We would then do edits of the entire chunk until it was eventually an act and then eventually, you know, the whole book. So it was a really relentless back and forth. There was conflict within that. There was disagreement, but it it never got particularly testy. It was really just about what is going to keep this like exciting and fun and interesting and smart to read. Oh my God. That's amazing. That's like a type A person's dream. All those Google docs. (laughs) Can I tell you you what more complication? Sure. Um, Dan was writing a different book while we were doing. Oh my God. Dan has a memoir that's going to be really great that's coming out this year called How to Be a Family, where he lived in four different parts of the world with his family learning about family life. Oh, I've seen Um, this. I saw this. Very exciting. Very exciting. But those four parts of the world were in order, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, New Zealand, (laughs) the Netherlands. Costa Rica and rural Kansas. So for the first quarter of the year that we were working on the book, Dan and I were only awake at the same time for about 90 minutes a day. And so it was like the space station passing over and you're like sending the packet of videos to it while you can get an antenna and then it goes around (laughs) the earth again. You know, every morning I would wake up and, you know, my wife and I would get my daughter ready for school and doing all that stuff. And and as we're doing that, I'm seeing all the answers to the questions I had sent at the end of the day, the previous day come through, have a little bit of time to dialogue with Dan and then just had to like do my own work for the rest of the day. It's kind of nice though, because you get to work on your own and then have the feedback as opposed to having someone like bugging you all day. It's like, I know that I can send off my finished thoughts and then process and then get my feedback. Okay. I sort of want to shift gears a little bit. Can you tell me if the book changed at all from where you started and kind of where it is now? The the most curious thing that happened to the book over the course of writing it is that Donald Trump was elected. Sure. And so one of the things that happened over the course of the book is that our interviews with people went from when we were reporting out the article, it was before the election, right? The the article was printed out was was reported out in a sense of hope for what the future contained. Uh, and after the election it was like, how are we gonna survive? Um, and so two things happened as a result of that. One thing was that the tone of our interviews changed. It no longer became this is a timeless play that asks eternal questions, but it literally became, this is a timeless play and we can see that because it's extremely relevant to what is happening right now. Oh my God, did you hear on NPR this morning? <laughs> you know, that was it, it, that was sort of the, how it changed. Um, and what that made clear to us is that, you know, by the time the play originally came to Broadway, which is the 1993 and 1994, Reagan and Bush were gone. Clinton was in office. There was a lot of hope for the future. We were only a few years away from the introduction of the triple cocktails, which would, for some people, um, turn AIDS into a chronic manageable illness, right? Mm -hmm. And so, but that was not when the play was written. Tony started writing the play in 86, 87, 88. You know, 88 is when he's really, you know, going at it with the play. And so there's a weird way in which the time that the book came out and that we finished reporting the book and that the Broadway production came out, right, that, that time, it's far more similar spiritually or maybe psychically to the terrain when Tony wrote the play. Mm, 
Were there any other title or cover images? I think the cover is one of the most beautiful covers I've ever seen. I have oh, to say. Oh, man. Thank you The book so is so much. beautiful. It, Thank you. It gives me like chills, but I'm oh, hoping that you guys didn't have other things that were even better. You did not. Uh, but thank you so much. So the book was, this is an example of the thing speaking to us, right? Mm-hmm. The book was always going to be called The World Only Spins Forward. I thought It was so. never going to be called anything else. Just like the chapter in the book that is called Bad News, mm-hmm. which is, I believe, the first chapter, which is named after the first act of Millennium Approaches, was mm-hmm. always going to be called Bad News, right? Right. There were certain things that it was always going to be. It, we just knew that. Um, another example is, I won't spoil what it is, but the very last page of the book is sort of a gesture that's borrowed from the fim- Errol Morris is the thin blue line, which is both Dan and my borrowed, not in an actionable way, borrowed in a loving (laughs) from the thin blue line. uh, And which is one of Dan and my shared favorite movies. And we just always knew it was going to end like that. You know what I mean? There were certain things new, but the cover actually, we didn't know the original covers that we looked at were what you would think they were images, show images. They were Mm -hmm. black and white, a black and white image of the angel and prior. Right. Mm. And, we weren't into that, you know? It just seemed like we could do something else, but what that something else is or would be, we didn't exactly know. Dan and I are both very big um, comics fans, graphic novels fans, and so there was a list of artists that we were thinking about approaching to draw an original cover, Um, but budgetarily that just wouldn't have worked out. In the midst of all of this, one of us, I don't remember who it was, said, wait a second, the Museum of Performing Arts and Design in San Francisco has the wings of the original Eureka production. And Ella McLaughlin has always talked about how these wings were the most beautiful of the wings and they're these incredible, this incredible object that looks like a Durer etching, you know? Um, maybe we could do something with the wings. And Ben, our editor, just thought that idea was great. Mm-hmm. And so they contacted a photographer and we contacted the library and they let us use the that original angel costume and the wings. And they shot a bunch of different variations of that. And we eventually used um, the one that's on the cover. It's so good. Um, yeah. I mean, another one of those, I think, you know, you can see there's like a, fo- a photo that's a detail of just the feathers mm-hmm. that is in the book as well. You know, that like some of those photos wound their way into the book as well. I love it. This is my favorite question to ask everybody. So I hope that you have an amazing answer. <laughs> no pressure. Do you have any writing snacks or beverages? Coffee is the obvious one. I drink a lot of coffee over the course of the day. I probably drink more coffee over the course of my writing day now that I have a four-year-old than I did before I had kids or a kid. I do not have a specific writing snack. That's terrible, but I don't. I have the worst answer to this question. I drink coffee. No, it's okay. Most people say coffee. Every once in a while, someone will come up with a really good snack because I just love snacks, so I just like to talk about snacks. It's not really that crucial, but... (laughs) I can talk about snacks. I am part of a Facebook group devoted just to talking about chips, so I am happy to talk about snacks. Well, what's like Um, your go-to chip? Oh, well, okay, so the chip that I deeply love, it's not a go-to chip, but it's an idiosyncratic Isaac Butler chip, is, uh, are you on the East Coast? I'm in California. In California, but you lived in the East Coast. I lived in New York for eight years. Yeah, so do you remember Utz brand potato chips? No. They're an Eastern Seaboard only potato chip. No. Utz, Utz brand potato chips 
makes what is called a crab chip, which is basically a potato chip. This is a mass-produced, you can get this in a bodega in New York City. Okay. It is, uh, and particularly in Maryland. They eat them a lot in the wire. A crab chip <laughs> is a potato chip basically covered in Old Bay seasoning, salt, and a large <laughs> amount likely of MSG, I would guess. And <laughs> if you eat an entire bag of them, your mouth like is in just total pain from how much salt you've just taken in. Oh and I love them. They are, but not um, for writing. But not for writing. Not for <laughs> writing because then the, the schmutz gets all over yeah, your fingers. Yeah, it sounds very what are, dirty. What are you going to do? You know. Um, no, for writing, I am mostly just drinking coffee. Drinking coffee. I'm sitting at my desk, or you know, at, at whatever coffee shop I'm writing from, um, uh, trying to keep my hands as clean as possible so I don't ruin my computer. Do you usually write at a coffee shop, or do you do you work at home or an office? Or so I have a home office now. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. Thank you. My wife works from home one day a week. And so we sort of decided, oh, well, we have this extra room and we'll really turn it into an office. And uh, at some point she was like, I have a present for you. I have gotten you a chair that you can read in, in our (laughs) office. I have like a nice chair with an ottoman and a lamp and a table that I can read at. Um, So I have been working from here more. The the projects that I've been doing recently, the the podcast, Let Me Your Ears, and the new book I'm working on are much more research intensive in a way that involves having like a dozen books open at the same Mm. time. And I just can't take those to a coffee shop. You kind of stole my next two questions for you. One is about, I know you're working on something new because- the world only spins forward came out almost a year ago. It, it's your new book, but it's not really anymore. Cause you have like a new baby that you're creating. Do you want to tell us just a little bit about that? Sure. So the next book I'm working on, it's with the same editor at Bloomsbury, Ben Hyman, who's really wonderful, uh, is a book called The Method. And it is a narrative history of the method. So it spans 100 years, roughly, from 1895 to 1995. Uh, takes us, starts with the birth of the Moscow Art Theater under the direction of Konstantin Stanislavski, you know, <laughs> all the way through to the creation of Inside the Actor's Studio. And so it is about the rise and sort of fall and sort of re-rise of this way of understanding what acting is and thus what a human being is that really changed our idea of what art is and what authenticity is and what honesty is. Can you just keep writing the nerdiest theater thing so that I have stuff to just read and enjoy? I'm so excited. (laughs) Oh, good. Well, hopefully this will not only be for the theater nerds. I mean, the good news is, is that uh, it has lots of stuff for them, lots of great backstage dish. Um, But it's also a story of, you know, eccentric inventors. It's really a story of, you know, of, of eccentric inventors and really serious interpersonal conflicts and blood feuds and all this other stuff um, uh, that happened to transform theater and film uh, permanently. And does that come out in 2020? You Maybe? 20, Do you know? 2021. It's 2020. due in May of 2020. So okay. I can't imagine it will come out okay. before early. Okay. So you have a little time with it. Not enough. <laughs> of course. Never enough. So here's the other thing. I discovered... Um, this podcast called Lend Me Your Ears, and it's all about Shakespeare. And my listeners know that I'm currently doing my own Shakespeare challenge where I'm reading through all 37 of Shakespeare's plays. I saw that. Didn't you just do Romeo and Juliet? I just did Romeo and Juliet. And it's still just, it's actually that good, which you don't want it to be because everybody knows it, but it's really that good. You know what I find really interesting about that play? Uh, We didn't do it on the podcast, but one thing that I find really interesting about that play is that like Romeo and Juliet have no idea that they're in a tragedy. No. Like they think they're in a comedy and then it turns out to be a tragedy, right? Whereas like Hamlet, for example, really knows he's in a tragedy. He's kind of stoked to be in a, in a tragedy. He wants to be sad. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and then once the ghost comes to him, he's like, oh, I'm in a revenge tragedy. You know, <laughs> Hamlet is a character who has read the kinds of plays that he is in. Totally. Uh, you know, and so, but what's interesting about Romeo and Juliet is those poor dumb kids, because it really right. is just about some dumb, dumb kids. Yeah. Those poor dumb kids have no idea they're in a tragedy until it's too late. No, it's true. And also, the Friar Lawrence is actually a useless adult. Oh He's God. truly one of the worst adults in the hit. Like, I, when I was reading it, I was like, really, guy, this is your idea? Do you think this is the right way to go with this? I remember after <laughs> seeing uh, Romeo and Juliet at the Shakespeare Theater in D.C. with my mom. Uh, you know, and obviously I'd, we had re- I was in high school, but I read the play already. We knew it. But when it was over, she, she said, let me just say, if I had a housekeeper and they did what that nurse did, <laughs> I would kill her. Kill her. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's like the adults are way worse than the kids. But yeah. anyways, all of this is to say that your podcast, Let Me Your Ears, is all about Shakespeare plays and you did six. And I just, is there any chance this is coming back? Not no chance that it's coming back. Oh I my never God, I needed to come back. I love it so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I will say that there's no current plan for it to come back, but I think as the, as peak TV has taught us, that doesn't mean that it won't, right? It's like, there's like a right. follow-up series to everything now. So, um, uh, it was originally pitched as a limited series. You know, my original conception of it was that it would just be a one season thing. Certainly when it was close to over, I, I, I was like, Oh, this is kind of a bummer. It would be great to come back and do it again. The particular, slant of Lemire ears is that it's about politics. So right. it's triangulating the politics of Shakespeare's day, the politics of Shakespeare's plays and the politics of our own day. Shakespeare's career was relatively short. It was. And so the problem, if you start, if you do it for too long is that you run out of actual political events and topics to discuss. Sure. Right. And so I, I, I didn't want to do that. And so I had always conceived of it as a, as a limited podcast. I kind of wish it had been nine now, you know, it'd be yeah. nice, like three more. Which one would um, you have added if you were going to add just one play? It'd be interesting to do, you'd have to do all three of them in one go. Right. But it would be interesting to do Henry the sixth. Mm, no, I don't like that. <laughs> Right. I don't like that answer. Uh, I mean, it's good for politics. I mean, if you <laughs> sure. think about politics, you know, we also did not get to do any of the romances, mm-hmm. um, which are in their own way, deeply political works. I think that you could do something really interesting with the Tempest, which is mm. far from my favorite Shakespeare play. Me too. Um, uh, uh, but the Tempest is a really interesting play because it, it is about tyranny. On some level, uh, we think of it as being about forgiveness. Sure, it's about that, but it's also about tyranny, and it's also about colonialism, and it's also about America, you right. know. And so there's an interesting, th- and it's like Othello. We talked about this in the Othello episode. It's also a play that's been repurposed yes. by people of color to be something very different than what Shakespeare was writing. And so that would be a really interesting kind of thing to delve into. Um, as a Jew, it would be fascinating to do Merchant of Venice, right? Sure. You know, there's a bunch of different ones out there where there's interesting political stuff. But I think if I had to choose one, it would be The Tempest. What would oh. yours be? If you, well, if, you had to, if you got to tell me to do a play. Well, like, I don't... Mm, okay, so I love... Love, I loved the Othello episode and I loved the Measure for Measure. Those were probably like my two favorites because I knew those plays pretty well. But yeah. I would be curious about, um, about 
Titus Andronicus because I just recently sure. read that and I feel like nobody talks about it. And I think it has a lot of, you know, the race stuff and the gender stuff with Lavinia. And there's just a lot there that I feel like people don't talk about. So selfishly, totally. I would love to hear someone like dive into it because it was not really something that was centered at all in my like studies of Shakespeare. So I really liked that one. So that yeah. or else I love Richard the third, but I feel like what that just feels too on the nose. <laughs> Well, that was why that was why we did Richard the Second. Yeah, I figured. We're like Richard the Third <laughs> is a really obvious choice. Uh, <clears throat> um, yeah, uh, yeah. Titus Andronicus is a wild play. Um, so the Julie good. Taymor film of it is really crazy and great. Yeah, I feel like you guys could do you could do any of them, and it would be great. I loved it. So if Slate Thank wants you. to listen to this podcast, why don't you just do another season? I'm just casually. <laughs> Before I let you go, I have two more questions for you. Sure, so yeah, one. So when you were writing The World Only Spins Forward or working on it, what sorts of things were you personally reading, listening to, watching, like to inspire, excite you or get you away from the work? I would say that I knew the oral history format pretty well. I watched a lot of documentaries. I'd read a lot of oral histories and stuff like that. I did not feel like I needed to go brush up on that form Mm -hmm. in the same. So when I was away from the book, I was reading almost entirely for pleasure and not, not entirely, but almost entirely. And one of the things I gave myself permission to do after Trump was elected was to go back to reading science fiction, which is my comfort food. Uh, but I had sort of left it alone for a while. Like every time I feel cold coming on, I somehow am filled with a desire to watch Star Trek The Next Generation. So uh, I read a lot of Ursula Le Guin. Okay. Um, I read every not, she has a cycle of novels that are not exactly interrelated, but they all take place in the same universe called the Hainish cycle. And I read some of those were rereads, but I read all of them. Um, I read NK Jemison's trilogy, mm. uh, the fifth, the, that starts with the fifth season. I read, you know, I read a bunch of that kind of stuff. That was not the only thing I read all year, but I, I definitely read a lot of that. Uh, and I finished out the year reading Middlemarch, mm. um, which was probably one of the most pleasurable reading experiences of my life. Um, oh, I read a lot of Stanislaw Lem too, you know, so, so that wasn't all I was doing. I mean, I read, let's see, how many books did I read that year? You know, not related to the world only spins forward. So I was doing reading for that too, but I read like 55 books that year. Um, and it was mostly, but it was, I was largely trying to keep myself motivated, uh, to pleasure so that I wasn't always in this world. Amazing. I love that. Okay. If you could have one person dead or alive, read the world only spins forward, who would it be? Okay. So this is, that's, that's a, that is a great and very difficult question. I would say, I'm going to go ahead and say this. It would be the, the person who I never met who was involved in the story of angels in America, Mm -hmm. who I became sort of the most fixated on was this woman, Sigrid Wershman. Mm-hmm. And Sigrid, if you haven't read the book, Sigrid is the woman uh, for whom the role of the angel was originally written. And there's actually all these references to her in the play. And one of the acts of the pl- of Perestroika is dedicated to her. And she died. Uh, she died before the play ever premiered of cancer. She was very young. Um, and she died of cancer in her early 30s. I did a lot of the reporting around that. And so I got to talk to her widower and I got to talk to Ellen, who was her best friend. Ellen McLaughlin was her best friend and stepped into the role. And just the person who emerged from that portrait was a really 
I think, incredible, unique person. And uh, so I'm going to say her. Uh, I never got to meet her, and it would have been amazing if I could have met her. Um, she's sort of one of the many ghosts that haunts the book. And it would be sort of even more amazing if I could sort of like, you know, shoot the book back to her in a time machine so that mm. she could see what became of this project that she started and did not get to see through to fruition. I love that. That's such a good answer. I think that that's it unless you have anything else that you want to say. No, I think that's it. Okay, amazing. So we're going to be... Well, you guys are listening to this episode now. And then on April 10th, I have a guest coming on and we're going to do a deep dive into the book, The World Only Spins Forward. So if you haven't gotten your copy yet, make sure you go get it. The World Only Spins Forward by Isaac Butler and Dan Coyce. And it's in the world. So go get it. Isaac, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. That's going to do it for us today. Thank you so much for listening to The Short Stacks and thank you to Isaac Butler for joining us on the show. I also want to say thank you to our friends at Bloomsbury for sending us a copy of The World Only Spins Forward. Make sure you read the book and listen to our deep dive on The Stacks Book Club on April 10th. To help support The Stacks and earn awesome perks, go to patreon.com slash the stacks or make one-time contributions at paypal.me slash the stacks pod. Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, take a moment to rate and review the show. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. This episode of The Short Stacks was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 